Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Grass withers, flower fades, the Word of our God stands forever. This year for Advent, we're going to be spending all of our time this month in Galatians chapter 4, focusing in on basically verses 4 through 7. This is Paul the Apostle, uh, was Saul of Tarsus, is converted on the road to Damascus to Christianity, being changes from a persecutor of the church to a missionary, a church planter, and he plants a church in Galatia on one of his first missionary trips going up from Antioch, Jerusalem, and up into uh, Asia Minor. He plants this church of Galatia, and here he is writing a letter back to the Galatian church, churches, however you want to say that. He writes this letter to them. And so this section comes to us, obviously, at chapter 4. There's a lot more of, of what Paul writes to the church at Galatia. We don't have time to cover the whole context of the book in, in our Advent series, but I might encourage you to go back and read at least the, the first three chapters. You can do it this afternoon pretty easily. Uh, read the first three chapters. If you feel uh, fresh and, and adventurous, read the whole book possibly and, and get the context of, of what Paul is writing here in, in chapter 4, what he's trying to communicate to this church. Um, Paul is making the argument that in, in this rea- and for the reality of justification, he's, he's arguing in these first three chapters for justification happening by faith alone with no works added to it. There's this group of people that have come in called the Judaizers, and they're trying to bring back in um, Jewish Old Testament, Jewish laws, and say, well, if you're a Christian, that's fine. Um, you know, okay, you have faith in Christ, but they're adding circumcision on top of their saying, well, that's fine, but now that you've accepted Christ, here's some rituals you need to go through in order to really be Christian. And Paul is, is arguing against them with the case that justification is by faith alone. We see this clearly in chapter 3. If you've got your Bible out there, go back to chapter 3, verse 11, and it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's his argument through these first chapters of Galatians for justification to come by faith alone. And in order to make his point, he uses this analogy that when we were not right with God, we were like slaves under the law. We were we, it brought to us death, and it, it gave us this necessity, this great need for something to happen, that we would go from these slaves in bondage under the law, unable to save ourselves, condemned to 
adopted children, by which we can cry, Abba, Father, like we read in our text this morning. Paul is making this, this analogy. Something's got to happen from us become, being slaves to where we can become children. And what is it that's going to happen? That's what he's, one of the things he's addressing that's in, in, in where we are in, in chapter 4 is what is this thing that has to happen from slaves under the law condemned to adopted as children? So much of the Christmas story makes no sense, will make no sense to you if you cannot and will not see the darkness that all men sit in apart from Christ. If you cannot see and you will not confess and will not, will not agree that man in his natural state is in darkness, is in sin, and is condemned by God who dwells in unapproachable light, who is perfect in his holiness, who is just and good and righteous. If you cannot see and if you will not see that man sits in darkness apart from God in his natural state, the message of Christmas will really not mean anything to you. If you cannot see the slavery that humanity sits in apart from the freedom found in Christ alone, the Christmas story will not move you. Presence might excite you. Nostalgia might excite you. The idea of family getting together. We have a world that gets caught up in Christmas and Christmas activities and getting the family together and having um, turkey or whatever again since we just had a Thanksgiving, but having a, a big fancy family meal again. These things excite us and, and, and people, get, people get fired up about them, spend tons of money on these things. But if you will not see and if, if you cannot see the darkness, the slavery that humanity sits in and its natural state apart from God, Christmas will not mean all that it is meant to mean to us. If you have, but, but if, if we have the eyes this morning to see ourselves honestly and to acknowledge our poor condition before a perfectly holy God, the Christmas story is the launching point of the greatest news you will ever hear. It is the launching point of the greatest news you will ever hear. So we start in Galatians 4 this morning just talking about basically the title of the series, The Fullness of Time. We're going to spend all of our time this morning just at the beginning part of verse 4. But when, there's that but, something happens, there's a but word there. We're in slavery, we go from slavery to saying Abba Father. What happens? How can we get there? We should stay here. Paul says, but, but when... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. What does this term, fullness of time, we don't really, I don't know if we talk, maybe a talk like that. That's not a way we normally, a phrase we use much. The fullness of time. In the NIV, if you have the NIV translation, it says, When the set time had fully come. Or the Holman Christian Standard says, when the time came to completion. There's this idea of there's a set time and the time is just right. There's this idea, you could say that when at just the right time or when the moment was ready. Or you could think of uh, some of the commentaries I read. It's, it's a pregnant woman who is just at the fullness of time. And if you've ever carried a child, I haven't. But I've observed my wife uh, carry a couple of kids. And there is such a thing as a fullness of time where you're like, it's time. I can't, I, this, this can't come quick enough for me. There's a, there's a pregnant fullness of time that at just the right time, 
this is going to happen. That's the idea that's being communicated here. This perfect time, just the right time, at the appropriate time, when the time was complete, when the time was proper, when it was ready, when the time was full, God acts. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. So three comforts that I want us to focus in quickly here this morning. Three comforts that come to us from this text. In God, when the, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The first comfort that we should have is that when speaking of when the fullness of time had come, that implies God has a plan. In order to have appropriate time, perfect timing, there needs to be an objective. If, if there's no plan, if there's no objective, if things are just one big colossal accident and we're just hoping, we're just seeing how things go with no idea how they're going to turn out, how can you call anything an appropriate time? I mean, if, if, if you're moving there, while watching the World Series, there was a second baseman and they had the game plan lined out for the guy to, you know, sometimes they can bring the third baseman over. If you guys don't know baseball, you're like, what is he talking about? You can, you can move positions on the field to, to field a, a batter's hitting percentages. And they moved the second baseman and... And it depends on which team you're rooting for, okay? So the guy is at the base, he's batting, and the game plan is to stay at this position. And as the pitch goes, the, the fielder begins to drift this way for whatever reason, and sure enough, the ball gets hit just out of his reach on his left because he didn't, he didn't uh, follow the game plan. And so if that hit was in your favor, you say, well, at just the right time, this guy moved right when he should have stayed put. But if, you, if your plan... <laughs> was for your, that guy to get out and to catch that ball, you say, well, that was not at the right time. But both of those opinions require a desired outcome, right? In order for there to be the fullness of time, God has a plan. We bake cinnamon rolls about every Sunday morning. I'm up early, I get the oven on, and I don't know, I'm not out rolling dough. It's you buy the can at the store and you <laughs> pop it open. Okay, just the, wow, Darren bakes cinnamon rolls. Sure, I'll bake you cinnamon rolls. It takes 15 minutes in my oven. Um, but, you know, there's a, we, we get out, and you, you pop the can, you put them in the little tin, and you throw them in the oven, bake it 375 because we got a dark, we got a dark tin uh, pan. And you, you bake it for 15 minutes, and then it comes out. Um, and in, in the fullness of time, you pull out the cinnamon rolls, and they're ready to go. Now, that's all assuming what? We have a plan to eat cinnamon rolls. If my plan was to, I don't know, just see what happens, I, you know, then, then there'd be no such thing as the fullness of time. I wouldn't know when to pull these cinnamon rolls out. I wouldn't know when to turn the oven on, when to preheat it, what to preheat it to. I wouldn't know any of these things. But the fact that there is a timer and there's a fullness of time, there's a time that we take them out and set them on top and glaze them and eat them, means that all along there's a plan. In order for Galatians 4 to say to us that in the fullness of time, God is not guessing at this. God is not hoping for a good outcome. God is not uh, gambling. He's not playing card games or playing the lottery. God has a plan. God has a plan. Isaiah 46 says this plainly. Scripture tells us that we have a God who has a plan. So you flip to Isaiah 46... Verses, um, verses 8 through 11. Isaiah 46 says this plainly about God. 
Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. In order for there to be fullness of time, we must confess we have a God who does have a plan, and He will will accomplish His purpose. This world is not a colossal accident with no meaning. The scene at the manger and the following life of Jesus is not some tragic accident or God trying to take the best of a bad situation and, and make it okay. God has a plan. He's doing something. It wasn't like, oh no, they ended up in a manger. Let's see, can I, can I call the shepherds in to sing them to, to, and can I get three wise men to find him? I don't know, how am I going to make this work? God, at the fullness of time, he has a plan. There is a purpose, there is meaning And it lies within the purposes of God himself. So not only, first of all, God has a plan. Secondly, not only does God have a plan, but he has the power to perform his plan. Having a plan isn't necessarily that sure of a reality, right? I make plans all the time, and then mainly I make plans so I can change them later, I guess, basically. I like to change plans, so I make plans So I'll have them to change when things don't go right. That's why I make plans. But God is not like us in that way. God makes plans, and then God has the power to do exactly as He plans. He sent forth His Son. In the fullness of time, when things were just right according to His plan, He acts with power. God, the second person, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, becomes flesh, adds to Himself humanity. He puts on flesh. He sent Jesus. Jesus is not some guy who happens to get it right, and then God says, well, look at that guy. He is really nailing it. I think I'm going to make him the Messiah. I'm going to call that guy. That's actually a heresy in the church called adoptionism. There's a historical heresy out there in the early centuries of the church that said Jesus was just an exalted man. That he wasn't God from on high, made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He's just a guy who, at his his, uh, baptism, God said, boy, this guy's doing good. I think he's got promise. Let's pick him. No, all along, from the manger, from the cradle to the cross, God has a plan and he is acting on it. God is specifically working out his purposes and he has been since day one. And the birth of Christ is no exception. So, we might ask, hold on, <laughs> if, if God has a plan and he's doing it exactly like he wants to do it, why in the world did he send baby Jesus to be born in a barn? Why, why swaddling cloths? Why, why do they have to send shepherds? I mean, that's the, that's the welcoming committee. I mean, we have the royal family over in the UK or whatever. When they do anything, the press is full of every little thing they do. When they have a child... That thing's greeted. Here comes the king of the universe to be born, and he's greeted by shepherds. 
Are we sure God has the ability to work out his plan? All of these questions, they're great questions, but at the very foundational level, they make us confess that maybe, just maybe, our plans and our ideas are not the same as God's, which means, sorry to break the news to you and myself, we aren't God. And he has plans, and he's working them out. And does that mean at times they will not appear to be the plans that we have? It should almost be expected that our plans would not always be the ones that God would plan out for the very reason none of us are God. And so God works out his plan. And we have recorded for us in Scripture many instances of God working his plans in ways we could not comprehend. Take a little trek with me to the book of Genesis. Get your Bible back out. I want you to see this, if you can. Genesis chapter 37. God, we have many... This is just one of the clearest, impressive situations of God having his way. Genesis chapter 37. This is the story of Joseph. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to read through this incredible... I don't... This incredible account of God working his plan when you'd think God has lost all control. That's what it looks like with Joseph. God has surely lost all control, but he doesn't. Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zippah, his father's wives, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob's name, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaves arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. His brothers said to them, "Uh, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then... To add insult to injury, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to, come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, this puts a lot of stress between Joseph and his brothers. Going on in verse 12. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent 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 him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, what are you doing? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So this brother, this hated brother, is out looking for these brothers who do not like him under the order of his father. 
Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill and throw him, to the line, throw, him, in, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And he took, they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Verse 25, they sat down to eat. It takes a certain kind of sick person to throw a person into a pit to die and then go have a meal. But that's what they did. They sit down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Well, isn't that generous? Instead of killing him, we're just going to sell him into slavery. That's nice. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, sold him into the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, they took Joseph to Egypt. Boy, if that ain't a bad story, I don't know one, right? Dreams, visions, people are going to bow down to me. I've got a maid. I've got this coat of many colors. I'm my son, my father's favorite son. And what happens? He's sold into slavery in Egypt. This is plans going wrong, right? The plans go further wrong, right? We know he's sold into Potiphar's house. He becomes the, the head of the Potiphar's uh, household. Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to uh, rape her, essentially. And Joseph is then thrown into prison. So, father's favorite, sold into slavery. Ascends into the house of Potiphar, thrown into jail. Well, then he begins to ascend in the jail. And he he's profits well in the jail. And he, he becomes uh, basically gets all of the uh, uh, responsibilities in the jail given to him. He really prospers in the jail, but he is nevertheless forgotten there. You can read all of this in 38, 39 and 40. 42, uh, we see that, Fer- that Joseph then goes and ascends into power to Pharaoh himself. It's a long story, believe it or not, longer than what I've just read to you. There's more to the story. Read on in chapters uh, up through all the way to chapter 50, essentially. But you read on in this, and Joseph does rise up into power. There's a famine in the land. Joseph becomes second to Pharaoh. He sells off all the grain. He becomes this master of Pharaoh's grain. And Joseph's family back in, back in Israel, back what happens to them? There's a famine. They're out of food. What do they have to do? They have to come down and bow down before Joseph, like he saw in his dream, and buy grain from, and, and sell grain to his brothers. His brothers have to come and buy grain from Joseph. This dream that he had is fulfilled. All of these plans being, my point is this, all of these plans being ruined all along are summarized like this by Joseph in Genesis Chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Remember this reference, 5020, such a great, such a great verse. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. In this conversation, Jacob dies. His brothers are nervous that Joseph is now going to um, punish them. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I share that one giant story for this reason. God has a plan. 
and he has the power to perform it. And even when it looks like that plan has gone horribly wrong, does it mean that God is not performing his plan? No. You may mean it for evil. They meant it for evil. It may look like nothing but evil is happening in Joseph's life, but that whole story is told to us that we might have comfort in the knowledge that not only does God have a plan, but God has the power to work out his plan. He says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. God has a plan and he has a purpose and he has the power to carry that out. God has a plan. God has the power to carry it out. Therefore, thirdly, I said three things, we're marching along. Since God has a plan and God has the power to perform that plan, where does that leave us? Okay, there's a plan. He has the power to perform it. Where does it leave us? If God has a plan and the power to perform that plan, then we as his children, through faith in his son Jesus Christ, we face the future with hope. This is the the Advent theme this Sunday. Hope. Because God has a plan and the power to perform it, as his children reconciled through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, we face the future with hope, knowing, knowing, that through His Son, promises have come to us that God will perform. We're not done with this, with this whole section, but if you jump on down to verse 5, or we're just, when, when the fullness of time had come, back in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. To redeem. To redeem. This brings us back to our opening comment. You've got, in order to see the beauty of Christmas, you've got to see the desperate state that we are in, that we are in deep need of redemption, that there is a disconnect between us and our fallen state and this holy, righteous God. And what does God do? His plan and His purpose, the fullness of time, He sends forth His Son for this purpose, to redeem that fallen humanity, to reconcile that fallen humanity back to Himself. How does that redemption happen? Through the life and death and resurrection of the Savior who is born on Christmas Day. We cannot forget that Christmas, with all of its nostalgia, with all of its sentimentality, with all of its family things that we get caught up in and enjoy, with all of those things, the Christmas Day is leading to the suffering and death of that child. It is leading to the suffering, crucifixion, of this Savior. The cradle always lies in the shadow of the cross. The cradle always lies in the shadow of the cross. This, it is through faith in this work that our redemption is accomplished. Romans chapter 5, just one of the most beautiful passages on our redemption. Romans chapter 5, verses, starting in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God. There's the redemption that we're looking for. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For, verse 6, while we were still weak, 
There's pre there's we are, there's our state, there's where we are. While we were still weak at the right time. Does that sound familiar? The fullness of time? While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God has a plan, He has a purpose, He has the power to work it out. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Incredible promises here. Peace given to us through this work of Jesus Christ whose birth we celebrate on Christmas Day. So this brings us to this great promise. When we talk about Advent, it's waiting, it's coming, expectation. There is another appearance coming. Not only do we sit in the Advent season because Christmas Day is coming, we live life in one great big Advent season. One great big season of waiting. And so we set aside this time every Christmas season as a reminder of the great reality that as we wait for Christmas Day, the reality is we are waiting for this final appearing. We remember this waiting for the first appearing because we sit in another advent waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What will this coming do? It will bring about the perfect completion of His plan. God has not gone astray. The manger does not mean he's gone astray. His death does not mean he has gone astray. These thousands of years since that event of his resurrection and ascension into heaven does not mean his plan has gone astray. God has a plan and he has the power to work it. And we're tempted to think he's gone astray, but he has not. Maybe, just maybe, God has allowed all these seeming handicaps along the way to show his purposes, to show his purposes. And that his glory might be clear in his purposes. Maybe all the handicaps of the manger, the bumbling disciples, his crucif- all these things that are just seem to be, why would you do it that way? Magnify the glory of a sovereign God who works his plans according to his power, even when we think all hope is lost. God has a plan, he has a purpose, he has a meaning, he has a power, he has the power to carry it out, and it is a plan for our final peace. With him and in his joy forever. Philippians 4 1 through 6. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you, salvation, God began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. My friends, longing with me in this Advent season called life for the appearing of our Savior, God does not fail in his purposes. Do you confess yourself a sinner? Do you know of your unworthiness before His perfect righteousness? Do you believe in the life death, life and the death of the Son of God as an all-sufficient sacrifice for your redemption? Do you long to live life empowered by the Holy Spirit, glorifying God with everything in your life? Then hear this. No matter what storm comes your way, no matter what trials and tragedies strike at you, be confident in this great reality. God is working. God has a plan. He has the power to work it out. And no matter what trials and tragedies strike at you, know this. He is working and He is working for your good. To bring you to Himself for your highest and greatest joy. 
And when Advent is over, when the waiting is over, when the coming is over of Christ, when this expectation, when He has shown up, when our waiting for His final appearing is over, and the next fullness of time has come, those who are His, through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, will have no concept of disappointment. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your sovereign rule over all things, that we are not adrift in a sea of nothingness. But you, in the fullness of time, sent your Son. You have a plan. You have a purpose. This has meaning. And you are accomplishing your purposes, God. We see this so clearly in the work of your Son. God, give us eyes to see and faith that rises up to rest our lives in the peace that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ, for our ultimate joy at the final coming of your Son, where he sets everything right. Sin and sickness and sorrow are gone forever. And we live in the light of your joy and of your presence forever. God, give us hearts expectant and rejoicing in that reality. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.